and welcome back to dreams passion and your Hong Kong story today we have with us a very dynamic and a versatile personality someone who's very regarded in Hong Kong in the sphere of internet and technology someone who was responsible for bringing the internet service provider to Hong Kong let's meet Yatsu founder outplace and animoka hello yat and welcome to our show thank you was born and raised in Austria. He was a music undergrad and made his debut for the first time in technology by starting his work at Atari in Germany. In 1995, Yat moved to Hong Kong and he was the first to establish the internet service provider for Hong Kong. Today, Yat is the founder of Outplace and Animoca, the two companies that are in the field of digital consumer entertainment, with Animoca especially trying to revolutionize the video gaming industry. Let's talk to Yad and find out what are his other initiatives. So Yad, tell us, how long have you been in Hong Kong and what actually brought you to Hong Kong? I've been in Hong Kong for, well, I guess almost 30 years, right? Uh, when I think about it, I always think to myself, it's 10 years, but actually so many years have passed. Uh, it's really become my home. And what brought me here was uh, actually uh, when I was uh, in the US, I worked for Silicon Graphics at that point, uh, which had acquired our business. And I was the only Asian on that team, and this is like, let's call it early 90s business strategy. And they said, oh, you should go out to Asia, right, and help us sell the products there. So I was uh, in Japan, then I went to Taiwan, and then I came to Hong Kong. Uh, and a few things happened in Hong Kong that sort of, sort of made me stay here. The first one is, because of uh, my father, mm -hmm. I was able to get permanent residency, but I didn't know what that meant at the time. So which meant that I didn't need a visa to stay here. So okay. that, was the, that was sort of the practical aspect of it. Uh, but the other one was that I couldn't get my email. Uh, and uh, back then, you know, we, we didn't really have the internet as we know today. There was no broadband. But everyone was using email either through CompuServe or AOL or some version of that. And Hong Kong didn't have any of that. So I thought to myself, well, you know what? You know, I'm a big believer in this. I'm using this already. I'm going to bring uh, or will be a part of the force that would maybe bring sort of internet to Hong Kong, I mm -hmm. thought. Uh, and set up uh, a internet service provider in Hong Kong called Hong Kong Online, okay. uh, which was, that was a long time ago. Wow, and then how long did you sold that business? Well, so the business morphed, right? Mm -hmm. So I would say that it was certainly an interesting lesson because I was selling something that nobody in Hong Kong really wanted or needed or thought they needed at the time. Okay. The argument was strong, I felt, but you know, this was, we're talking at this point, sort of you know, early to mid 90s, and um, I did feel a bit like sort of selling fridges to Eskimos. I had to educate everyone mm -hmm. sort of why the internet was a good thing. But bear in mind, uh, back then, there were probably less than 20 or 30 million internet users worldwide. Yeah. Right? So, so that super frontier and sort of gave me a little lesson of being maybe a little bit too early. So that didn't really quite work out as well as I hoped. Uh -huh. uh, and so I morphed that business into a free sort of internet service provider for hosting websites, okay. so people could ex sort of uh, develop their expressions online. Very similar to what eventually became a big success in the US called GeoCities, so I'm yes. really dating myself. But basically, it's kind of like an early version of blogs. Mm -hmm. uh, and what I discovered, outside of the fact that it was still not making any money, uh, was that a lot of users were willing to dial in mm -hmm. to upload their content, literally waiting for hours to upload it, because it would take that much time, uh, and patiently waiting for it, and that the vast majority of them were very young. Okay. So they were either kids or teenagers or maybe young adults, right? 
Um, and we grew to 300,000 users. Uh, and that business and ultimately ended up getting acquired back in sort of the big first dot-com wave uh, close to the late 90s, mm -hmm. uh, which basically helped me with some the initial capital that would eventually start our place. Okay. So, but you were a music undergrad. Like, what exactly got you into technology? Well, so music wasn't really my choice, right? Okay. So uh, I came from a family of musicians, uh, specifically my mother, okay. uh, a very talented musician, uh, and, um, and uh, as an only Chinese child, uh, my fate was sealed, right? Okay. So I sort of managed to get through, through just sheer hard work, right? Okay. Um, um, and then there was also a little bit of that stereotype, you know, Asian kid music, right? And then, of course, I grew up in Vienna, yeah. which is sort of the capital of classical music. Um, and uh, and my, my, my mom, you know, she was very active in the cultural scene as well and had all these expectations. I think all of that ended up uh, sort of making me study and do music. Mm -hmm. But on the side, I was basically coding and programming at a very young age. Uh, I had a computer, a uh, Texas instrument, which was very really unusual at the time. Eventually, a Commodore, but... So you were computer. always coding on the side? I was always coding on the side, but there was no teaching material for coding, right? So it was all self-taught. Self like, when I was studying music in Vienna, mm. I was with classmates that were really, really gifted and talented, uh, which is kind of depressing, because you basically could see very clearly what you could not do. But I found a niche uh, where I would be good at, which is, you know, composition, mm -hmm. where I would then use a computer. Mm -hmm. uh, and I wrote one of the first pieces of software back then when I was using an Atari at that point, uh, which had a MIDI port. So it allowed me to uh, sort of play music on a keyboard, which already was unusual at the time. And then the signals would go to the computer and turn that into a notation. Mm -hmm. So that would make it easier for me to compose music. Uh, and that software I ended up uploading to bulletin board systems like Genie and CompuServe. And that was when I first realized actually that could be a career because, you know, like at the time there was this concept called sort of, uh, sort of shareware software. And what happens is you share the software for free. Uh, and because there was no PayPal or banking system out there for virtual transactions, you would literally put in at the end of the software a sort of writing that said, oh, if you like the software and you would like to see more, please send a check to this address. And I just put my home address and whatever. Just, and you know, you got a check? And yeah, exactly. So, wow. so, so, and and you know, I was very young at the time. I don't remember if I was like twelve or thirteen or whatever. I was, I was, I was very young, and I wasn't expecting a check. You just put it, you just put yeah. it in there because everyone yeah. else does, right? Because yeah. it's kind of a cool thing to do. And then I got the check sent to me. I didn't have a bank account to put money in, right? So wow. it was like, oh, oh, wow, this is interesting, right? And then eventually, um, through that process, I ended up getting discovered by Atari, uh, uh, which is a U.S. company, but had uh, an office both in Vienna and in Germany, where they asked me to sort of get involved and help sort of code and develop. So that's where you made your technology debut? That's pretty much where I made my technology debut. So tell us something about Outblaze, the achievements of Outblaze that you are proud of. I mean, I think there's a variety, I suppose, uh, that I'm, I'm, I'm pleased that Outblaze has been able to do. But I think first, as one of the very earliest technology pioneers in Hong Kong, we set up in 98, mm -hmm. uh, setting up a startup, um, you know, back when startups weren't cool at all, right? We did a few things. One, uh, we, I think, helped pave the, the way for people in Hong Kong to say, well, actually, you could be a technology entrepreneur and at least make that into a career right. without, uh, without necessarily having to work for someone in the technology field. And then I think the other thing is, we're very local to Hong Kong. We started in Hong Kong, and we're still in Hong Kong mm -hmm. uh, as a headquarter, although we've grown globally as an operation. And the number of people, now I haven't done a full analysis, 
but I know of at least 40 to 50 companies that have emerged um, as startups or new companies that essentially have gone through, let's call it the quasi-outlist program. Now, we're not an incubator. Okay. However, uh, they've worked here, they, they, they saw our culture, and I guess they liked it enough that they went out and when they left Outplays, they started their own companies. Okay. Right? So there's a whole series of those companies that have sort of emerged afterwards, uh, some of them you know, uh, perhaps even bigger than us, uh, that, that sort of went through the Outplays school, as it were, right. even that wasn't the intention. So I think in that sense, we've created a fair amount of impact to the local ecosystem mm -hmm. as, a, as a small but initial feeder. Why did you choose? digital consumer entertainment as a category to expand. Like now you also have Animoca. What is the impact that Animoca is also trying to create by introduction of blockchain technology? Regardless of what we do, the, the sort of, let's call it mission and, 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 and goal for us is to drive both impact with purpose. So why am I focused on consumer? Is because we think both the impact and purpose is more powerful. Okay. Now that's not to say that enterprise can't drive that. Absolutely, right? There's many great examples of companies that have driven incredible impact and purpose, but that's just not in the speed that we would like it, because I'm a fairly impatient guy. Okay. So I like to see results fast. Okay. And we always felt when the internet was growing, so when we started Outblaze in 1998, there were 36 million internet users worldwide. That was it. Right? 36 million internet users. Okay. Right. That was not the beginning. The internet started earlier. Okay. So when a, you started? Yeah, when we started Outblaze in 98, okay. Okay. there were 36 million internet connections. So you just got to take that in context. That means in Hong Kong, you might have a couple hundred thousand of them. Yes. So how do we get to a point where we could bring that industry to billions of users? Well, either we kind of try to do it for corporate, which I found was hard when I was trying to build an ISP, or we tried to go consumer, which I found was easier, mm -hmm. because the young generations or the millennials or the tweens or whatever were like, hey, you know, this is cool technology, I like this and they were easier to adopt. Mm -hmm. So I could reach users faster in the consumer side and therefore deliver impact much faster. Mm -hmm. But there are also different risks, right? I mean, with, uh, with that uh, versus going enterprise. But anyway, that's the reason we focused on that. And when we started Outplays, we ended up becoming a big pioneer in email. Okay. So we were one of the largest email service providers in the world mm -hmm. before IBM acquired us okay. uh, and acquired that business to make it part of their sort of uh, um, Lotus Notes cloud computing uh, division mm -hmm. for email specifically. Okay. But that was one example, because we looked at what was a killer application mm -hmm. uh, that would help drive mass adoption for email, uh, for, for internet, mm -hmm. uh, and that was email, right? because that was the form people were communicating. So we ended up coming up with a very generous product, okay. uh, and then we ended up partnering with others by white labeling technology, mm -hmm. uh, where we provided them the email technology so they could run their own hosted email sites, and at one point, uh, maybe something like you know, 30, 40, or maybe even half of US internet traffic flowed through our email service in one way or the other. Wow. So I want to be very influential. Okay. Uh, when at our peak, we had like maybe 90 million accounts, right? wow. which of course today is a small number in relative terms, but back then, mm -hmm. uh, relative to the global internet, was a very large number as the internet started to rise. Okay. Uh, and so we, we powered the sort of companies like, you know, we had like the Network Solutions as a client, Register.com, uh, Mail.com, like a whole range of large sort of brands that you might have recognized back then. Yes. Um, and they were all powered by our back end. But we were clear that we wanted to have consumers use the service because okay. they're the ones who would use it and then drive influence, uh, we thought, to, to the enterprise markets. Uh, so that's kind of what we did with Outplays. It was the fact that um, IBM bought all the assets for that part of the business, so we didn't have a business in the area. Okay. And also we had a non-compete, which is very standard. Yeah. So in a non-compete, 
which in this case was three years, we couldn't be in a similar business space. Fine. So uh, we already had uh, been active in the gaming side already, okay. uh, and we basically tried to focus more on the consumer gaming side. Right. And the very first wave we, we attached on uh, that we saw quite a bit of success was mobile gaming, so okay. smartphone gaming. Uh, we had one of the sort of top games back in 2010, 2011, um, and became a leader in smartphone gaming, which is a very large industry today. It's bigger than movies and music put together. Wow. Right? $150 billion industry last year. Uh, 2.5 billion people who play games. But one thing that we realized in the gaming industry was that so much industry, so much money was being made in the industry, but the users themselves who played in it actually didn't get to benefit from it really. They, okay. was, they were simply, the benefit was fun and social, but they don't actually get any value from it other than that. One of the big things is to deliver true ownership in these items because then you can make that into a profession, into a business, into something really tangible because we spend so much time in those virtual worlds. When you play the game, every asset that you own inside the game is yours, really yours. Now, this is sort of metaphorically speaking, not straightforward because when you ask someone who plays a game and he buys a gun or a skin or a car in the game, he thinks of it as ownership. Right. He doesn't think of it as, I don't really own this. But in reality, what he actually bought were bits and bytes in a central server owned by another game company right. who you're getting the service from. And when the game company decides, I'm done with the game and shuts it down, you don't own it, actually. Right? Okay. It disappears. Then we think that that will usher in a completely new form of uh, sort of virtual asset class that does not exist today. Games themselves today, there's many of them, right? Uh, games themselves today are like our virtual worlds, very much like independent feudal kingdoms, walled gardens. Mm -hmm. There's no trade in, no trade out. You do everything inside that universe. If you want to leave to play another game, you give everything up and you go to another game and you play that world. Wow. That's where it is today. Right? Okay. Um, but what we've seen, historically speaking, feudal kingdoms have a maximum size in which they can grow. And what opens them up is free trade. Okay. So when I can suddenly trade my items from game one to game two to game three, it's kind of the same as if I suddenly can trade items within the European Union or the world, and then that entire ecosystem benefits. But the way the benefit happens is because everyone participates. Okay. So we're talking about a growth of, um, a massive growth of opportunity because not everyone has a vested stake. So if your son, for instance, uh, was to play his favorite game, and the assets that he has are, you know, he puts in $10 and he really, these are really $10 worth of assets. He could make them better by sort of doing things to, to the assets or performing on them. They could be worth $100, $500, or $1,000 maybe. Mm -hmm. Or they could be just worth $10 or less. And then when he leaves the game, he can sell it to someone else. Right? And the way that game companies will be making money is not just by selling content, but generally by taxing it just like a real government. So we think that will then create this emergence of uh, virtual governments, essentially, okay. uh, and a completely new sort of landscape. Uh, and I think blockchain is the only way currently to do that because blockchain validates your digital provenance okay. uh, in a decentralized authority that you can't tamper with. Right? Okay. Um, because right now the problem is, let's say I was to say you really own this digital cup if it wasn't a game. I could take it away from you because I control the database. Yeah. That's why blockchain matters. Because in the blockchain, there's millions of nodes that validate it. Okay. So I can't take it away from you. Once it's there, it's there it's permanently. There. Right? Okay. Uh, and that's the main reason why blockchain matters. But tell me, where did all this creativity come from? 
has do you think it, your music background has something to do with it so i do get that question asked just as oh music and technology and <laughs> no i think music taught me discipline okay i'm not sure it taught me much creativity to be honest only because only because um music um was taught in a fairly didactic manner uh, and i think you know we separately have a project that's not related to any of this around sort of trying to make music more fun and entertaining because i felt that uh, music should be a creative activity mm -hmm. but is possibly taught in one of the most uncreative ways possible uh, rote learning i think what you know, arguably made me uh, sort of let's call it creative is I, I would say that I'm a fairly strong, uh, maybe divergent thinker. Right? Oh. So I think divergence, uh, divergent thinking, and of course empathy is related to that. Divergent thinking, I think, is perhaps the more important skill uh, than think of it as purely creative. Right? Mm -hmm. Meaning that uh, I look at a situation and I see many options. But there are some people who are more convergent in their thinking who will see a situation and only see one solution. Right. Right? So there's strengths and weaknesses to both, right? You need both. So, so tell us what, uh, about a challenge you have faced that has made you emerge stronger. In the setup, I would say I've had multiple, multiple challenges. So I, I don't know that I can really pinpoint one particular one. But I think maybe one of the challenges that uh, really sort of made me think about the situation was when I first came to Hong Kong and I set up my first ISP, uh, Hong Kong Online, mm -hmm. I really encountered an incredible degree of obstinacy in terms of, and also it, it helped me maybe I think develop empathy for the situation because I was selling internet service, you know, in the 90s to people who just didn't need it actually, or didn't think they needed it. And the business proposition was clear, I thought, because right. you save a lot of money, you can communicate with your clients, everything's clear. However, they're like, why do I need this? Uh, there's something called DHL, I can send stuff over quite easily, there's the mail, I just don't need to focus on this. Um, and I, I found myself educating. And that was probably my very first lesson with sort of uh, uh, the fact that you could be very advanced in technology, but if you're so advanced in the head, then you're in this innovator stage. And that stage could be 10, 20 years even, where you're basically sort of talking about a great use of technology, which is still true. However, you're so early, it doesn't matter, right? Uh, and, and thinking about the right timing, even though that's not an exact science, uh, became even more important. However, I would say that I think the, if I was to draw experiences from setting Hong Kong online in sort of the, the, the early to mid-90s to today, I actually think that blockchain is more advanced. Okay. And the reason why blockchain is more advanced is that there's you know, roughly 40 to 50 million people right now that are sort of active on blockchain, which is still small. But unlike the internet okay. back then, everyone's kind of heard of blockchain yes, somehow. Uh, you know, they don't know what it is necessarily. Yes. They heard of this thing called Bitcoin. You know, they look at it as that's kind of weird, maybe dubious, who knows, right? Yes. However, they've heard of it, right? And so it's there. Uh, whereas back then, actually, a lot of people, when I talked about even email, it was like, what is that? Yeah. I have no idea what that is. And, and, uh, and I don't necessarily want to be in a place of business where it's like that again. So I think Hong Kong is, uh, has been good to us, uh, broadly speaking. I mean, obviously, ups and downs for every place. I think, to some degree, uh, the fact that we were, for a period of time, uh, one of the only players in Hong Kong in, in our field gave us a little bit of an advantage. Mm -hmm. And I think we definitely sort of um, uh, got support from that. However, as the sort of world became smaller, as it were, 
the connectedness of Hong Kong give us a specific geographic advantage, obviously coronavirus aside, uh, that people from all over the world would be willing to come to Hong Kong. So talent is one of those tricky things that you can't just get easily, right? right. The war for talent is global. I mean, people say, oh, there's less talent in Hong Kong, or there's less talent in whatever region, there's more talent in Silicon Valley. Maybe in absolute numbers that might be true, but there's also way more competition in Silicon Valley. Right. So if you're in Hong Kong, uh, you could be one of those places where the talent might come to you because mm. people from the US or you know, Europe would want to work for an organization like yourself, ourselves in this case, uh, but based in Hong Kong because they want China exposure or Asia exposure. So right. geographic advantages were there. Hong Kong is English. Uh, very comfortable with English. And I think that's really important. We think of that as one of the key aspects of helping drive innovation and creativity right. because you need to have a common language. Mm -hmm. right? If you don't have that common language, then you can't have friction. Without the friction, you can't have uh, creativity and, and innovation, right? Or divergent thinking uh, flourish for that matter. So I think, I think Hong Kong has been very good for us that way. But Hong Kong is also not the place where we can grow to 10,000 people. Right. Or, you know, not that we want to actually do that, but it's hard because it's it's, a smaller, it's place. a smaller place, right? And Hong Kong is also not a place for a domestic market. So almost none of our business is domestic in Hong Kong. Most okay. of our business is international. Um, US, uh, Japan, Korea are big markets for us. Uh, so we are, of course, present in those locations and we have offices in those locations. And I think for us, you know, again, aside from this entire momentary sort of circumstance, the fact that Hong Kong has been such a great central hub means that you can fly to all of these locations very easily. If I need to be in Finland where we have an office, I can just take a direct flight. If I need to go to London, if I need to go to New York, if I need to go to San Francisco, I mean, we have a big development office in Buenos Aires. I mean, all these places are easy to access, relatively speaking, from a central hub like Hong Kong. Uh, and that's one of those things that really benefits. So what's next for YAT? Where do you see yourself in the next five to 10 years? So I, you know, we don't necessarily have a 10-year plan. To me, I think that's just too far ahead. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I typically look at more sort of what I'm trying to achieve, whether this is one year, two year, whatever, or five years. Um, the big thing right now is we're trying to drive very much uh, blockchain adoption through games. Mm -hmm. uh, and in particular, as you mentioned earlier, uh, changing the landscape of video games. But not changing the landscape for video games because we think it's important sort of for video gamers per se in that sense, right. but rather that we think uh, it creates a whole new economic landscape when virtual digital ownership is commonplace. While the internet offered this wide distribution, mm -hmm. um, it was easy to centralize control because of where the data is stored. Okay. Right? So that means companies like Facebook and Amazon and Google, because of their centralized ownership of the data, have all the power. And this is why we're so excited about blockchain. Because okay. blockchain promises to do what the internet should have done, which is essentially distribute and fractionalize that in a way where ownership is no longer controlled by one, but must be to have the governance owned and distributed by millions. Right? So if I send you, you know, the Bitcoin you might receive may not be worth $1, or it could be worth $5,000, whatever it is. However, you know that you definitely received that, and nobody can take it away from you. Right? There can be no central bank that says you shouldn't have this, or there can be a central authority that can try to monopolize that, because millions of people out there validate this, and millions of people who are not necessarily large, overarching uh, sort of monopolies. Uh, so it's, a, it's an opportunity for, I wouldn't call it a, uh, it's a wrong way to call it wealth redistribution because it's not a revolution in that sense, right? But it is a revolution in the same way that the internet revolutionized uh, new opportunities. Um, we think blockchain will do the same. And wow. that's what we're excited about. You're really a game changer in this field. It is definitely going to be like that. Sounds like that. 
So are you ready for your rapid fire question round? Uh, sure, what's this that? getting <laughs> to know Yat's story. Okay, sure. Yat's yeah. Hong Kong story in a bit more okay. fun way. Sure. So, all right. So your favorite way to hang out with friends and family in Hong Kong? Well, I mean, I'm very much a uh, mountain kind of guy. So, uh, mountain, mountain. mountain kind of guy. So I, I hang a lot in the mountains, or relatively speaking in Hong Kong, it's more like hills, but still, uh, we hike a lot. Um, and uh, with my kids, I, I do a lot of activities. So favorite time is typically with friends, in nature, with family, I would say, in some form, form or fashion. Which is your most uh, favorite of all the trails that you have done in Hong Kong? I know a I know little bit more about you on that yes. angle because we've done a few hikes together. So now, tell me, which, which one has been your favorite so far? I don't know. Like, I, I love them all, right? I think, I think um, it depends. I, 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 it's, it's, it's hard to do that because because the trails in Hong Kong are also so unique. I mean, for instance, when I look at, uh, there's, a, there's a mountain scramble off the back that goes to, to High West, close to where we live. I love that because it's convenient, right? I can do that. I, I literally step out of my house, go with my dog, wife, or maybe kids, and uh, in literally five minutes, I'm on the mountainside. And I'm basically, uh, so I love that because where else can you do that? And when you're at the top of High West, on one side you see Old City, and the other side is more green. Right. And you know it's kind of a high spot in the Hong Kong Island, yes. uh, and and you know or when you see it in the sunset, and you kind of go, wow, this is Hong Kong, right? It's a city which is all concrete, sort of you know economic capital, all that kind of stuff, and then you have all this greenness, right? Hong Kong has so much to offer, right? Uh, so I think this is the part that is so um, so unique. Which other place in the world has mountains, nature, and bustling city life, no, literally within minutes away? Exactly. I think Hong Kong is truly unique that way. Okay, yes. Three words that describes your Hong Kong life. Um, three words that describe my Hong Kong life, I would say passion, mm -hmm. purpose, mm -hmm. love. So what are you most proud of as a Hong Konger? I don't know if you can say, it's, I think it's hard to say one thing, mm -hmm. but what I am proud about Hong Kong as a Hong Konger is I do sense, despite all of what's going on here in Hong Kong, there is, I think, still ultimately a strong sense of community in some form or fashion. There may be relative distrust to government, um, but we are still ultimately a strong community. I mean, if you look at, for instance, the coronavirus response, uh, we could have dealt with it in all sorts of ways, but at the end, the community did come together. People are wearing their masks. You know, whether you need them or not, it's all relative, but people are doing it for safety, not necessarily just because it's for their own safety, but it's for the safety of others, right? Yes. The same is true for when you have to rub your hands with alcohol and whatever. Again, you do it for others, not just for yourself, right? right? So I think that's a very strong sense of community, which Hong Kong has, um, and which fuels, I think, like the underbelly, I would say, of Hong Kong, as unhappy as some of the elements have lately been, is that sense of community. Okay. Um, and I think that's, that, that's the one that uh, has that let's call it unbreakable spirit, mm -hmm. in one form or fashion, right? Uh, and so I think, I think that's the thing that sort of gives it that sort of phoenix quality of Hong Kong yeah. that sort of constantly rises when there's struggles and people feel like, oh, it's the end of Hong Kong. I mean, the headline of the end of Hong Kong has, I don't know how many times we've seen this, but we've seen this plenty. And then somehow it's just still around and actually emerges stronger the next time around. I think that's, uh, that's, that, that's Hong Kong. So as a business leader, what would you tell the global business leaders around the world? Why should they engage with Hong Kong? Well, my first comment is that if you're a business leader and haven't engaged in Hong Kong yet, then I'm not sure that you're a business leader. Even though as a city, maybe Tokyo or Beijing 
or Shanghai might be bigger in, in sort of absolute numbers, but you can conduct business in English right. in those places the way you do. It's not a place where people are comfortable with, you know, and pre-coronavirus and everything else, um, Hong Kong is, you know, often uttered in a very positive way in terms of it's, it's wonderful, it's great, it's like entertaining, it's all that stuff, right? Um, and you can easily conduct business with. That's why, like if you're a global business leader, you will have had to have sort of some connection with Hong Kong. And if you're not, I would say you're definitely missing out. But more importantly, um, maybe you don't, maybe your business isn't quite as global as you think it is. Okay. So how would you invite the people of the world uh, to come to Hong Kong? Right now, I would say Hong Kong is the safest place on earth um, if you want to stay away from the coronavirus, right? However, that aside, the engagement to me is Hong Kong is super friendly to do business with. You go in, everyone's quite pragmatic. It's not complicated. It follows very much, let's call it more Western business rules, mm -hmm. um, but in a sort of Chinese context or Asian context. So I think, I think that makes it really practical. Also, it's quite no-nonsense. Mm -hmm. So if you want to really just get stuff done, you can get stuff done. There's no peer pressure to be doing sort of crazy drinking or to be doing sort of other sort of aspects of, let's call it, traditional business natures. I wouldn't, I wouldn't look at Hong Kong necessarily as purely the gateway to China. Honestly, if you're just interested in China, there's better ways of doing that. Right? You can go straight into sort of, you know, Shanghai or Beijing and so on. What I think makes Hong Kong special is that it is, from an Asian tech context, uh, both a combination of the most international, right? If you think about the mixture of ethnic, cultural uh, groups that are here, it's incredibly multicultural. And then I would say that the people who are in Hong Kong are also a bunch of people that are generally more uh, sort of chaotic, if that's the word, uh, daring or enterprising. So if you enjoy that with a diverse mix, and Hong Kong is good because Hong Kong is a bit messy, which is good because in a sense, right? So if you want to have innovation or disruption or cause a little bit of trouble mm -hmm. in established frameworks, Hong Kong is great. You know, Singapore is also a melting pot yes. and it's also great that way, except you can't really mess things up too much. Um, well, you can be entrepreneurs, right? Yeah. I would say, but if you want to be a disruptive entrepreneur, I think Hong Kong is better um, than, than most places, especially from a multicultural aspect because everyone's very comfortable with English as well. Thank you so much, Yad, for you know, making time for us today. Okay, and we, we wish you all the very best in all your future endeavors. Thank you. Same to you. Stay tuned for our next episode on dreams, passion, and your Hong Kong story, where we bring you yet another fascinating story from this wonderful land, Hong Kong.